Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? And welcome to episode 27 of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast. It's me, your boy, the big D. Double D, Dangerous Delicious Dynamite, Daryl Edge. And here we are. It's the fourth film in the Fantastic Four, the fearsome four of Cage's perhaps most uh, popular and uh, well-received and money-making films. We've gone from Leaving Las Vegas to The Rock, Con Air last week, and now here we are with Face Off, a film in which faces come off and then on again and then off. And then on again. How are you? How are you doing? It's good to be back. Been excited for this one. Been excited for this one. Conair last week, face off this week. Very excited to get into it. Clocks have gone back here. Woke up feeling like my face had come off. But it hadn't. It was still on. I'm still nearly 30 and I still look very, very tired. Maybe I could go for some of that sweet sci-fi tech we've got in this film. Uh, but yes, hey. Working from home now, that's a new challenge. It's easy to get distracted. There's a cat around. I can just scritch him. I can just go to the toilet and no one knows. It's a weird kind of bliss. I'm very into it. I'm not arguing against it. Trying to keep motivated, though, that's the question. How do you keep motivated when you're working from home with all these distractions around you, with all these Nicolas Cage films at your fingertips? You know, wanting to watch Face Off all week. Put it off until Saturday, recording this on the Sunday. And what a rush it was. What a ride. Two hours and 20 minutes, well spent. 10 out of 10, would do it again. But that's what we do here on Cage Rage. We watch all those Nicolas Cage films from start to end on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. It's a feeling of euphoria. It's a feeling of being close to the golden hog, the greatest hog of the greatest actor of our generation. Along the way, you can join me on the various social medias if you want. We're on Twitter, cage underscore podcast, Instagram at cage rage pod. If you enjoy the shows and want to kick something back, you're very welcome to. Don't have to, but pop over to coffee.com forward slash Daryl Edge, D-A-R-R-Y-L-E-D-G-E. And we're on a few different streaming Platforms, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Podchaser. Now there's a lot to cover in this one. Back to solo this week. So let's get into it. Let's start. Get into that nitty and that gritty. You might be wondering as well, you've not mentioned Ian in a while. You've not mentioned Ian in a while. I've not seen him. Well, I did see him earlier this week. You know, as I say, working from home, um, I was on a call. Have to, unfortunately, still have to talk to people from home. That's uh, getting shouted at when you're at your own home. That's a new experience. That's a new one. Weird, but interesting. Um, suddenly got Amazon delivery person banging on the door. I'm stuck on a call. Can't get downstairs. Managed to get off it. Race down to get these packages from the Amazon delivery person. And then my cat's trying to get out. I've got no time for that. Can't oversee a cat being out. He's partial to a quick cat scrap when... Ian's nobbing about. He tries to grab me in for a chat about what I'm doing at home. I'm like, I'm working from home. Working 
as in working right now. You know, hoofing this cat in with my legs, Amazon boxes in my arms, trying to shut the door. He's still chatting away. You know, if I was going to take someone's fate and ruin a life, as awful as it would be, Ian, you're up, mate. So, <laughs> face off as such. Obsessed with bringing terrorist Castor Troy, played by Nicholas Cage, to justice, FBI agent Sean Archer, played by John Travolta, tracks down Troy, who has boarded a plane in Los Angeles. After the plane crashes and Troy is severely injured, possibly dead, Archer undergoes surgery to remove his face and replace it with Troy's. As Archer tries to use his disguise to elicit information about a bomb from Troy's brother, Troy awakens from a coma and forces the doctor who performed the surgery to give him Archer's face. Ooh, what a plot. It's a plot that perhaps could only have existed in the 90s. It's a ridiculous plot. It's wonderfully over the top. But over the top plots and Nicolas Cage, well, they just go hand in hand, don't they? So Face Off, released in 1997, uh, at a very similar time frame to Con Air, no less. Uh, there was a bit of overlap in filming. Nicolas Cage was filming them at the same time. Face Off, written by Mike Werb and Michael Colliery, and directed by the great John Woo, who also helmed Hard Boiled, The Killer, Mission Impossible 2, to name but a few. This was his first Hollywood film in which he was given full creative control, often cited as one of, if not his best. I mean, the figures certainly back that up as on a budget of $80 million. It returned $245 million at the box office, making it the 11th highest grossing film of 1997. John Woo and Nicolas Cage would later team up again in 2002's Wind Talkers, but don't worry about it, we'll get to that one in due course. Face Off was also nominated for an Academy Award in the category of sound effects editing, but would lose that to the Snorefest, that is Titanic. Boring. Uh, for the second week in a row, James Cameron, eat shit, mate. However, it would fucking smash it on Rotten Tomatoes, and currently sits pretty with a certified fresh rating of 92%. You love to see it. It would also win the Saturn Awards for both Best Director and Best Writing, as well as the MTV Movie Awards for Best Action Sequence, the speedboat chase towards the end of the film, and Best On-Screen Duo for Cage and Travolta. Um, now, I didn't know this until researching, but Cage also won this in 96, the year before, with Sean Connery for The Rock, making him a two-time duos champion. Look at that. So, Cage, anytime you want to play some duos in Warzone, you hit your boy up. You hear me? The film started life as a spec script, with writers trying to sell it to various companies as early as 1990, underwent a number of rewrites, a number of producers, and a number of studios, until John Woo eventually became attached to the project a few years later. Uh, now, interestingly, in the early stages, Face Off was intended to be set in the future to justify all the facial transplant technology and the sci-fi prison air one. That's um, Cage, Travolta, Archer... Troy, it, it gets weird, but we'll explain. It ends up in later in the film. But uh, we wasn't interested in that. Said he didn't feel he'd learnt enough at that point in his career to make a great sci-fi movie. He further added, I want more character, more humanity. If there's too much science fiction, we lose the drama. So the project would evolve. Writers would strip away the futuristic elements to refocus on the characters. 
that would lead to Wu finally coming on board. Now, I think everyone knows that uh, Cage and Travolta make a great duo in this film. MTV said as much originally. It was Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Archer and Caster, uh, respectively. John Wu, though, hired John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, earning him the honorary title on this podcast of Golden Hogger. Uh, there are actually a few different duos eyed up for this film, including Michael Douglas and Harrison Ford, and John Claude Van Damme, and the anti-hogger himself, the micro-nub, the platinum-nub, Stephen Seagal. When will he stop? The writers had originally hoped that Douglas would take a role in the film, but while that didn't end up happening, he did instead take over as a producer on the flick. So, look at that. Believe and you will achieve. Um, now, there's a book that I reference sort of quite a lot on this podcast. It's one short book, only about 90 pages. Thoroughly recommend it if you've got any passing interest in Nicolas Cage, which of course you should, why else are you listening to this podcast? It's called National Treasure, Nicolas Cage by Lindsay Gibb. Search it out, give it a purchase. Really good read, really interesting. You can blitz through it in a day, in a short sitting. A lot of interesting information about Face-Off in the book here. Um, some parallels to adaptation, which I know was mentioned by uh, Tom last week in the sort of duality of Cage. Here you've got Cage playing effectively two different roles in adaptation. He's playing two different roles. These are the kind of interesting films that um, Cage likes to take on, and especially with John Woo at the helm. Now, John Woo is quite um, uh, infamous for letting his actors have a lot of creative freedom to sort of do what they want. Nicolas Cage, as you know, loves a bit of creative freedom. So with the sort of sensationalised over-the-top action and plot of face-off, these are two people that just go hand-in-hand hog in hand um, if if you really want to, you know. And this is the perfect opportunity for Cage to stretch those abilities, you know, playing the hero, playing the villain in this heightened, uh, ridiculous world, you know. The DVD commentary as well, Mike Werb, one of the writers, talks about sort of this duality and um, especially the, the lengths that Cage has to go to that you really have to applaud, I think, you know. Um, commentary, as I said, he mentions that Travolta has to play two roles in the film. He plays Sean Archer, and then he plays Castor Troy impersonating Archer, but Nicolas Cage really has to play three. So you've got Castor Troy, you've got Archer impersonating Troy, and then you've got Archer being Archer in Troy's body. You know, for Cage's Archer, horrified he's trapped in his enemy's body, but, um... Nicholas Cage said he would play Castor Troy's The Liberace of Crime. I mean, I suppose you could argue four roles in a sense. At one point, he is all spluttering and spitting and gargling, uh, all these guttural noises when he's playing Castor Troy without a face. The face generally quite an important tool to the actor. So, but this is you know deliberately over the top. This is this is sort of great fun. You can see that. Um, Cage and Travolta are having just a great time working on this. There's a, a lot of stuff where they get each other's mannerisms really down. Travolta impersonating Cage is just... you love to see it. Apparently they spent two weeks together before filming to try and get each other's sort of mannerisms and vocal cadences down and working on bits for each other to impersonate of themselves. Uh, so giving, so generous 
so wonderful to see it. You love to see it. What else we love to see is face off. Again, with like Conair, if Conair isn't your favourite Nicolas Cage film, then it's probably face off between the two. I don't think that you can go too wrong. So let's get into it. Let's get down to the nitty ad indeed, the gritty. And we start with Castor Troy, Nicolas Cage. Um, in a little flashback sequence at the start, we've got Sean Archer. He's enjoying a carousel ride with his son. Um, Castor Troy here, he has a bit of a menacing moustache. Um, and yet entirely aroused at the same time. He's sipping a drink with a straw. He's aiming down the scope of a sniper at Archer. Uh, he fires, the bullet goes straight through Archer, fucking wipes his son out straight to the war zone, gulag for you, my boy. We also get the sort of first of many times that a character will weirdly just touch another's face. Um, it, it's largely Archer that does this, um, or Archer in the guise of Nicolas Cage, but so they just like a full palm, just wipe from top to bottom of the face, a weird stroking motion. Um, this is everything science advises against in 2020. Uh, you may have seen like a little clip a few months ago of all the times they touched faces in Face Off. I'm sure there's some kind of symbolism to this. I don't really know what stressing the importance of faces, I suppose. Um, you tell me. I don't really know. It, it happens a few times. You kind of just accept it because, well, it's it's already ridiculous enough with faces being transplanted. But hey-ho, who are we? To judge um, in these situations, uh, I'm going to try and just see. You know, if my if my partner would accept this, um, you know, this connectivity, this new physical interaction of me just wiping my hand down her face, I suspect I'll get punched in the throat because 2020, it's not what we do at the moment. We stay away from people and we cower and we scream. Now we flash forward six years. Archer is now the head of a covert anti-terrorist team who. He's been obsessing over finding Castor. Um, it's sort of derailed him. It's made him sort of distant from his family, distant from his team that he works with as well. Meanwhile, Castor is having a great time. He's up to terrorist things. He's planting bombs at the Los Angeles airport. Uh, and this wonderful scene at the start, he's dressed up as a priest. He's dancing around, strutting, clapping, headbanging uh, to Handel's Hallelujah um, so, so wonderfully over the top, and just uh, it's a scene that you'll remember. He's straight up grabbing handfuls of choir girl's ass. Um, now I'm pretty sure that the choir girl is of age. I mean, sure, Castor is a violent criminal. He's got a laundry list of misdeeds at his feet, but he's not a complete monster. So I'll just put that out there at the very least. Uh, next, he goes to meet his. He's not in a circle of criminals, including his brother, Pollux. He's got this uh, deliciously velvety red ensemble shirt and trow going on. He's got a windswept coat. Now you'll notice as well, um, there are a lot of sort of stylized, typically John Woo slow motion uh, clips, like cuts, shots in this. Sometimes just a character walking. Sometimes it's just as simple as them passing an item to each other. It's just slowed down. It's very, very John Woo. Um, it's not it's not distracting if you're not familiar with John Woo. Um, that and Doves. There are Doves later. They're sort of some of his trademarks, something very typically associated with him. But 
when you've got a world as heightened as this, um, a little bit of a slow motion shot here and there, it's sort of the least of your troubles. You know, the windswept coat, apparently, that's a homage to Lawrence of Arabia, or should I say Lawrence of Acadia, hey? He's also got these incredibly bitching uh, dual pistols. Um, I think they might be Berettas or something. Um, I know John Woo is a fan of the Bretta, having never fired a gun himself, even though all of his films tend to have some kind of gun action in them. It's basically ballet. His um, he's choreographed sequences and his gunfights telling a story through um, killing people. So not everyone can do it. James Cameron can't do it. He can fuck off. But these two golden pistols, I've dubbed them Big Hog and Raw Dog, because let's be honest, if you take either of them, they'll fuck your wife. So Castor meets with his team, like I said, one of which is his brother, Pollux. Is Pollux a ridiculous name? You are goddamn right it is, but um, Castor and Pollux, it is a reference actually to the twins in Greek mythology, Castor and Pollux who Zeus would transform into the constellation Gemini. A little bit of research for you there. So, Castor was the mortal son of Tyndarius. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Uh, Tyndarius was the king of Sparta. Pollux was actually the son of Zeus. They shared the same mother, Leda. And I just want to point here that why Tyndarius hogged Leda, fair and square, Zeus had to disguise himself as a swan. What a fucking loser. Yeah, that's right. I said it. Zeus, you're a fucking loser. Pollux, though. Pollux, all right, would be the bigger, non-birded man. And he'd ask Zeus to let him share his immortality with his brother, hence the Gemini transformation. I mean, that's got to be an awkward family reunion. You know, one dad's a king. The other dad is a glorified goose. You boys are a constellation. Poor Leda. Uh, what do you do for Christmas? Um... Please get in touch. I'd, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Um, so anyway, mythological tangent aside, Castor pays these other two goons to keep his brother safe. He tells them, avoid downtown on the 18th. It's going to be a little smoggy. Um, that's code word for an explosion, which I'm sure, no doubt, is a metaphor. Finicolus Cage's hog. Castor then tells the stewardess on the private flight, uh, one of the key quotes from Castor here, that he can eat a peach for hours and then gets her to suck his tongue. What a power trip. Um, but, you know, you think one minute you're on top of the world, next the FBI have fucking rocked up, haven't they? Um, stewardess reveals herself to be an undercover agent. Caster's having none of that. You've had a taste of tongue, now a taste of asphalt. He shot her in the back, yeets her off the plane, and she hits the ground like a sack of shit. Archer then commandeers the chopper. Um, he takes a wing off the plane, so Castor does what any rational Liberace of crime, any rational psychopath would do. He shoots the pilot, he then tries to take the plane, uh, he crashes it into a hangar, one of sort of the first big um, set pieces and stunts of the film. I mean, we're not even 13 minutes in and it's well and truly kicking off rages. Um, so it turns out for this shot, the filmmakers had to film all of that stunt in one shot as they were really destroying a plane here so shot it with 13 cameras at multiple angles a camera for every minute interesting with sort of the, the camera angles as well uh, I think John Woo somebody wants to make sure he doesn't miss anything especially with Cage when you get the uh, scene a little later on 
where Sean Archer wakes up with Troy Caster's face. He had to film from multiple angles to film all these reactions that Cage was sort of working with because he wanted to make sure that he didn't miss anything. So now the plane is down. Caster whips out Big Hog and Raw Dog. He slow-mo dives out the plane uh, like a Max Payne game. Uh, firing off shots, taking lives, fucking wives. In the fray, Pollux is apprehended while Caster escapes. Archer and Caster then dual pistol each other until the cows come home. But the thing about these two is they both know their guns. They both know each other's guns. They both know each other. And they know that each other only has a single bullet left. Then they have their first face-off, total pun intended, before um, Caster is then fucked off down a wind tunnel by a jet engine, knocking him out cold, whacking him into a coma. 17 minutes. Uh, we're only 17 minutes into the film. We've already got sort of the emotional through-line of Sean Archer, who's been obsessed with you know, bringing Caster Troy to justice, avenging his dead son. We've got the wonderful over-the-top action, the gunfights, stunts, planes, choppers, Nicholas Cage, of course. I also say here, move over Ric Flair because John may be the biggest goddamn woo in town. Now, um, needless to say, Archer's had a bit of a tough day at the office. He goes home and he finds his daughter Jamie has been suspended from school for dressing like well, I assume how a rebellious teenager in the late 90s would dress. I say, just let people enjoy grunge, Travolta. The disco days are over. You know, Arch is there and he's looking at it and he's like, who are you supposed to be? And Jamie's like, you, you have no clue who I am. And a little bit of foreshadowing, perhaps? I suspect so. Now, Archer and his wife Eve celebrate Caster being caught and that their struggles are over. Now, I say, gang... The film's only 20 minutes in here. There's another two hours to go. I think you both need to slow down a little bit. Otherwise, that'd be a very short and very underwhelming film. And back at the Office of Counterterrorism, Archer's applauded by the team for his efforts. They want to celebrate this, but he royally shits over it. He's mourning the dead. Um, he doesn't think it's time to be celebrating just yet. Bit of a party pooper. Save that for the in-memoriam bits, just like they do at the awards of the Counterterrorism In-Memoriam Awards. I mean, his office archer is tearfully closing the case on Castor. However, no time to move on, as the team learns that Pollux has knowledge of the bomb, but he's not talking to anyone until he's seen his brother. Now, Sean Archer had actually believed Castor Troy to be dead, but he learns that he's being kept in a, I believe it's a medically induced coma. So instead of them just trying to talk to Pollux, um, reason with him, use any number of negotiating techniques with Pollux, the anti-terrorism team instead immediately decide, you know what, you should put on your rival's face. That That's fine. That's something we don't need to do any paperwork for. I suspect a lot of rules and regulations have been absolutely fucking shredded to pieces uh, when they came to this decision. Now, they say it's like a black book operation. It's completely off the record. Only very, very few people will know about it because, it, you know, it's a completely sound and logical thing to do. So, but Archer, of course, does resist. But after trying and failing to interrogate Caster's known associates, um, he reluctantly agrees to pop his face off and stick Caster's on. So the technology is pretty advanced. Uh, you can see, obviously, the sci-fi influences here. There's a guy in the shootout at the hangar who got his ear shot off. He's having his ear 
rebuilt. It's basically 3D printing, so I can't help but call that, hey, look, Nicolas Cage gave us 3D printing decades in advance. This is the power of the Golden Hog. They'll also fix up the hair. They're taking in the love handles. They've got these new anti-inflammatories that speed up the healing process in days. When he goes under the knife, Archer makes it clear that uh, there's a scar on his chest. That's from when Caster shot him through the back and the bullet went through and uh, pierced Michael, the child. He makes it very clear that although he needs that to be taken off, he wants it put him back on when the mission is over. Very important to him. That's his uh, connection to his son. So we get through, like, it's almost like a music montage of the operation with a laser trimming down sort of the sides of the face, like, it's very precise cutting. They have these molded masks that are fit to their face shapes on the inside, but the shape of the face of the other person on the outside um, is kind of grim, yet kind of mesmerizing. You know, laser knife suction masks. Um, the mask goes down, like, um, off just like that. They put it in some goop. Wouldn't be a sci fi scene unless you've got some goop. To put some shit into, it would all make Leatherface's job a lot easier. He like he likes to get some faces off as well. Makes me wonder if this is actually one of his favourite films. But um, the operation is well, obviously a success. Otherwise, this film would have been very, very different, very awkward. And now Sean Archer wakes up with the face and body of Troy Caster, and he's not very happy about it. Leading us to this week's random cage scream. Of the week. Are you okay? Come on, talk to me. This is where we start having some of that Cajun duality, you know. So now he's um, he's was Castor Troy. Now he's playing Sean Archer as Castor Troy. We've seen Troy at this point as um, this egomaniacal. Um, again, to use the phrase, over-the-top villain. But now we see Cage playing this um, distraught man, waking up, seeing himself with the face and body of the man who killed his son, he's got this mixture of emotions, he smiles at the start when he sees himself in the mirror, then he breaks down hysterically. Um, you know, Cage, it's very easy to overlook the sort of level of acting and uh, performance that has to go on in a film like Face Off, but when you sort of strip that away, genuinely fantastic performances. So they managed to do a science on the voice. Uh, they have this sort of... Uh, little thing this chip or whatever that they put in the throat they match it to the um the line that caster said earlier if i can eat a peach for hours make it all cagey so with that um he's got the look he's got the voice and now they can uh ship him off to air one the high-tech prison and air one an anagram of nowhere um just just so that's out there because the prison literally is in the middle of nowhere and get him to get the dirt, the skinny, on Pollux. Now, when they're in the prison, uh, they have to wear these metal magnetic robo-boots and everything. They obviously keep them magnetised to the floor. Um, there was a similar plot point in a Red Dwarf episode. I forget which one it was. I, I'm not sure if that came before or after this. Um, 
But also these boots, apparently these magnetic boots, are the same as those worn by the Goombas in the 1993 Super Mario Bros. movie. So there you go, Mario and Nicolas Cage existing in the same timeline. But there's only one person raw-dogging Princess Peach, because he can eat a peach for hours. Of course, it's Nicolas Cage. So now, uh, when it gets a bit confusing, so before it was Sean Archer, now it's Sean Archer as caster so archer as caster finds pollux in prison um he's also accosted by a number of small-time cons that know him fortunately um archer is able to use his intense knowledge of caster and he's able to talk his way out of a few of these situations uh shout out to thomas jane here as well as a uh, convict burke hicks a wonderful hair um piece going on there even if it is a hair piece it could be all natural but hey midnight is you're fucking rocking it, man. Now, um, an absolute riot kicks off. Uh, another inmate attacks who he believes to be Caster because apparently he'd <laughs> fucked his wife. So, uh, classic cage for you. So, Archer's Caster fights back um, with the riot kicking off and leaches a deranged look uh, accompanied by some guitar shredding. Sort of flashbacks here to Pete Alo from Vampire's Kiss with the... Um, the eyes wide look going on there. Uh, Peter Lowe, gone, but not forgotten. I mean, like Peter Lowe in Vampire's Kiss, um, here with Nicolas Cage playing Caster Troy, but also playing Sean Archer as Caster Troy. He's got the liberty to just go um, above and beyond, a bit off the rails here, and you get it here as he enters full hog mode. He's beating bitches. He's going fucking method on the crims. Um, but the police, they rein it in, and he's given a little slap on the wrist for his troubles. Now, later that night, the thought to be deceased, but in a coma, real Troy Caster's vitals kick in. He wakes up from his coma. Um, he unbandages the wrapping, the bloodied wrapping around his face, and quickly pieces together that, unfortunately, his face has been ripped off. Now, I'm sure if he went to the police or the lawyer, he would have a strong case for uh, gross criminal negligence there of some description. But um, bearing in mind, like I said, that he doesn't have a face, he doesn't have lips, he makes a call to his guys, and understandably, he's a little upset. That's cool. We're going to deal with it. <laughs> Oh, yes, they're going to do it. Genuinely frightening. Um, but he calls his guys, as I said. Now, they somehow just happen to know where the face doctor lives. Um, I'm assuming that they found some kind of record in the hospital facility where uh, Caster's being held. And they drag him back to the hospital to reattach his goddamn face. Now, there's a visual here where Caster walks up to the Doctor and you see his reflection in the Doctor's glasses. And this visual of Cage without the face actually haunting, like some proper nightmare-inducing body horror kind of shit there. Um, I mean, there was a, a Batman story a few years ago where the Joker had his face cut off and then wore it like a mask and sort of made me wonder if... Um, Cage may have actually provided some inspiration there, so you never know. 
But apparently for that scene, when he had all the prosthetics on for the lack of face, uh, Nicolas Cage very uh, outright said to John Woo, don't want to see it. I don't want to see this makeup. So John Woo had to hide all of the reflective surfaces on set. So, um, I mean, speaking of the Batman illusions as well, um, as this was being filmed, Joel Schumacher, who made 1997's Batman and Robin film, apparently visited Nicolas Cage on set and offered him the role of uh, Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. the Scarecrow, in um, what was intended to be a follow-up to Batman and Robin. Unfortunately, that movie never happened, but the two men would work together in 1999's 8mm. So now Sean Archer, as caster, talks with Pollux. Um, he's trying to get some information out of him, but he says, yeah, I'm acting a bit off, you know, I've been in a coma for a while, um, I'm a little bit fried here. Um, and then he eventually learns that the bomb is being housed in the LA Convention Center. So he goes to report this back to the chaps um, at HQ, but then he gets a visitor, and this is where things, descriptively speaking, may get confusing as Archer arrives. Oh, Jesus. So Archer now has Caster's face, and Caster has Archer's face. So Archer, as Caster, learns that Caster, as Archer, has killed the only three people who knew that the transplant had taken place, and he's burnt this face shop to the ground. Um, so yeah, are you keeping up? Is this making sense? Um, descriptively, this is hard to convey, but it makes sense in the film, I promise. Um, what's more, which I really enjoy here, um, and I think, again, something that's quite easy to overlook is that we get Travolta basically doing an impression of Cage, and it is wonderful. So... As I said, they spent two weeks together learning how to play each other. This is why they are MTV's best on-screen duo, 1997. I'm going to play a clip now of John Travolta impersonating Nicolas Cage, and fuck me, it's really good. I torched all the evidence that proves you're you, okay? So, wow, looks like you're going to be in here for the next hundred years! <laughs> But of course, you can't let Travolta have all of the fun as just a moment later, Cage is set into attack mode. I have got to go. I've got a government job to abuse and a lonely wife to fuck. <laughs> Did I say that? I'm sorry, I didn't make love to. God, I missed that face. So Caster, as Archer, drives back to Archer's place, immediately hates suburban life, noting that he may never get a hard-on again. Um, immediately also very flirty with Eve, and let me tell you, raw dogging definitely on the cards here. Um, now he's also spotted Jamie, and may or may not have the hots for her. It's uh, very awkward, and then he grabs some cigarettes i mean as he himself says the plot thickens so um that's a thing that happens there uh, a little bit of incestuous subtext we get a little bit more of that later but uh we'll get into that um whilst he's in the guise of archer with all this power now he gets pollux 
out of prison. He visits him in this sort of fancy holding cell. He's having like a, a tongue sandwich or something. Um, so he visits him inside um, and says to him that basically um, we're going to need you to tell me where the bomb is and then I can be an American hero. He also makes these comments about having a ridiculous chin. Um, now, now, there's sort of two sides to this story. One that I read is of allegedly... Travolta asked the writers if they were making fun of him with that line, so they had to explain to him that the character of Castor was such a narcissist that he would hate the idea of anyone having his face. But there were other reports saying that the line was actually Travolta's own idea, so um, who knows? I happen to think he's got a fine chin, though. So as I said, Castor as Archer tells Pollux to confess the location of the bomb so he can disarm it himself and become an American hero earning millions in the process and the adoration of the nation, uh, more than the $10 million that was originally intended to them for this uh, act of terrorism. So he goes to disarm the bomb. He's singing Hallelujah in a little nod to the start of the film, taking off his jacket, doing little spins. And then he disarms the bomb. He's treated like the hero he wants to be as part of the plan. He's eating up the applause from the team. He's taking calls from the president. There's a Nick Cage's calls right there, you know. Nick Cage be getting calls from the president anyway. But uh, that's neither here nor there, but it's totally here. It's all in a day's work, though. That's all you need to know. So then he's back home. He's celebrating with a candlelit lobster dinner with Eve, but she notes that he seems like a different person. Now, if there's one thing that can solve a disturbance, a question like that, it's a swift raw dogging. You know it, but it kind of makes me wonder... And it's never addressed. I don't know if the answer's yes or no. I'm genuinely curious. They seem to medically switch everything else. Did they medically switch, surgically switch their hogs as well? You know, I mean, John Wu, I respect you. But I've got hog-related questions that need hog-related answers. If the hog was changed, would Eve, as Sean's wife, uh, the mother of his children, have noticed? I don't know. I don't know. Answers on a postcard, genuinely. So um, back to Air One. Archer, um, as Caster, incites a riot. So he's basically learned that the um, how to get out of the boots, which is where these extra naughty prisoners are taken for some electro-convulsive shock therapy. They have to take the boots off. So he incites a riot, gets himself taken into there, uh, the guy whose wife that Caster fucked is in there as well. So he pleads to him um, pretty much as Archer. He's like, look, I, I didn't do it. It didn't happen. Your wife's waiting for you at home. I know that much. So he manages to come out of his electrocoma, beat down some guards. Uh, Archer escapes, uh, overrides a bunch of security systems, escapes to the roof of the prison, where we find that, like the anagram of the name, it's literally out in the ocean, in the middle of nowhere, under some type of a oil rig kind of setup. So um, maybe some early allusions there to sort of Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were originally touted for this film, but would later go on to star in Escape Plan, where they would escape from a high-tech prison. So maybe we had the blueprint of their future team up there as well. But back to Archer. He's pursued by a chopper and dives into the ocean in what is no doubt a metaphor again. For Cage's hog. Uh, later, Eve takes Castor as Archer to her son's grave. He then learns that Archer has escaped 
and is rightfully furious. There's some poetic justice, sir. Castor Troy's dead. He got killed trying to escape from marijuana. Where's his body? I, I want to see his body. It hasn't been recovered yet. It hasn't been recovered yet! So now the hogging game is afoot, ladies and gentlemen. So Archer makes a call to Eve at the hospital. Um, she's a doctor, and he asks her to take Jamie, get out of there, go to the mother's. The man you think is your husband isn't. But due to the vocal change, she doesn't believe that this cage-voiced stranger is telling some truthy pies here. And now, if I heard the voice of Nicolas Cage on the phone, then he'd tell me to run away. I wouldn't even question it. In a heartbeat, Cage-senpai, in a heartbeat. He then calls through to Castor, letting him know it's a goddamn hog-off, and the game is on. So Archer's Castor retreats to Castor's hideout and talks with the people who sold Castor the bombs. These are the people that Archer tried to, but failed to interrogate earlier. Um, he's has a few drugs to sort of uh, fit in there, um, and he tells them, under the influence, he's like, I want to take Archer's face off, just like the title of the film. No more drugs for this guy. Waiter, check, please. Uh, Castor, as Archer, does get one kind of redeeming moment. He defends Jamie from her creepy boyfriend, kicks in a car window, drags him out, beats him down, throws him to the curb, and then he gives her a knife to defend herself. It's like, next time something like that happens and someone's grabbing you, take this knife, stab it in the thigh, twist it so the wound doesn't heal. Um, and that definitely won't come back into play later on. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Now, Archer is Castor. He meets Sasha, who was interrogated earlier in the film. Uh, she is Castor's lover and the sister of his primary drug kingpin. Not only that, but he meets Adam, Sasha's son. Twist, it's also Castor's boy too but nobody knows. Adam's face gets touched in the same weird way that Archer touched his sons at the start of the film. Adam does bear a slight resemblance to Michael, and Archer basically just crumbles. All those years of sort of emotional and mental anguish and torment just come through the guise of his enemy. Um, Archer calls him Michael, mistaken him for his deceased lad. Um, but as the old saying goes, lose your face, you lose your place. Suddenly... Led by Castor as Archer, cops descend on Castor's pad, rain down fire here. Uh, we get a lot of sweet action, a lot of sick action. Cage is super kicking cops. People are diving all around. Um, this is a somewhere over the rainbow place. Adam has these headphones put over him because they don't want him to hear all the gunfire going off. Uh, John Woo said he just wants to like a, a, a basically a nicer moment in the film, but. Um, you know, just think from Adam's perspective, he's watching as a bunch of these people that he knows are gunned down and, oh boy, that child is going to have some serious trauma when he grows up. Now, Sasha and Adam do manage to escape, but her brother is shot through the neck by Castor, as Archer, and he dies. Now, before he died, though, he gave his sister Sasha an uncomfortably long kiss on the lips. Uh, this is apparently said to be the actor's own idea to add extra weirdness to the relationship so in the list of things in films that did not need to happen this is up there um again i mentioned it earlier john woo does tend to give his actors a lot of leeway with improvisation even if it extends to incestuous implications so hey when you're given your first hollywood film and you're completely in charge <laughs> go all out why not fuck it 
Um, so now we get the Caster and Archer showdown there, sort of back-to-back uh, against the same wall with each other. Then they're aiming guns at each other through a mirror. Kind of love the visuals here. Um, you get like the visual of Caster as Archer, aiming at a reflection of Archer, and vice versa. There's just this lovely uh, twisted poetry to it all, you know, and John Woo's direction. Um, had my hog well and truly at full mast. Now Archer, as Caster, uh, manages to escape to the roof. He goes to swing from a cable. Uh, Pollux tries to intercept him, but he gets fucking smashed through the glass roof, plummets to his death, and dies in front of Caster. Caster obviously starts crying at the loss of his brother. Another FBI agent asks him why he's crying as a criminal. Gets shot through the fucking face for his trouble. So that's what you get. Um, Just... Let people cry. Let people display emotions. That's toxic masculinity right there. You get what you deserve. Next day at the office, Archer's supervisor, director Victor Lazaro, blames Castor as Archer for his, and I quote, Gestapo-like tactics. There's a lot of dead people. That's going to not reflect well on him. To which Castor replies um, very casually by elbowing him in the fucking heart and killing him, making it look like a heart attack. I mean... You know, we've all thought about elbowing our boss before, but come on, man, let's rein it in. Archer returns home and meets Eve, but with his caged face, she freaks out. Now, he explains to her, remember, there's this secret operation I was telling you about that I had to undergo. Um, This is the result of that. We've had to switch faces. The only people who know about it are dead. Now we're running around at each other in uh, each other's bodies with their faces. But then he tells her, look, um... My blood type is O negative. Casters is AB. Um, if you run the test, this will prove my theory. Um, now, this bit with the blood, um, this is according to a bit of trivia on IMDb that I definitely didn't steal. This also reflects their antagonistic natures. So Archer, as O negative, is the universal donor, reflecting his role as a police officer, a uh, agent who serves the people, gives back to society, Whereas Troy's is AB, the universal recipient, reflecting someone who takes from society and doesn't give back. Now, I mean, I'm no Dexter, and I don't know a lot about blood and all that, but it sounds legit, and honestly, that's why I definitely didn't steal it, and I'm saying it now. Now, Eve, she's been putting one or two bits together, the sudden switch in personality, she's not entirely trusting this archer who lays in bed with her, so... She just sneaks a blood sample, just jabs him with a needle in the middle of the night. You'd imagine it's something that would wake you up, but um, maybe when you've got those thick Travolta arms, then maybe it isn't. I don't know. I've uh, never had my blood type questioned before. So she sneaks the blood sample, uh, races to the hospital, runs a test, and it proves exactly what Archer was saying. Uh, The Archer in her bed is not Archer. It's Castor as Archer. So Troy Caster, you've been rumbled, mate. The jig's up, the wife is on to you. But then Archer as Caster happens to be at the hospital as well. He says to Eve, Look, I was hoping you'd come. I was hoping you'd prove this. She gets a comforting face stroke for her troubles. Um and isn't that what it's all about? Just getting your face stroked by Nicholas Cage. I hope that happens to me someday. So with Lazaro dead, this now makes Caster as Archer, the acting director of the Bureau, subsequently makes him untouchable. Now, Eve explains to Archer that 
the next time he's going to be vulnerable is at Lazaro's funeral. So this is when he's got to strike. Now, Archer, as Caster, later promises Sasha that no matter what happens next, Sean Archer will be off her back forever. He's seen another side to this story that he didn't know. There's a boy's life on the line. Don't worry about it. He's got you back. So we get to the funeral. Um, a lovely service, I must say. It seems to be on um, on a beach in this nice little church hut type of deal. Um, we get the trademark woo doves flying about here, for fluttering about. Archer has a choir boy pass the picture of Adam to Castor. Uh, the dove here flying past just before the final face-off. A reference to another Wu film, The Killer, where a dove flew by at a church before the final showdown. Uh, then we end up getting this massive Mexican standoff between Castor, Archer, Sasha, and uh, two of Castor's goons, with Eve just in the middle of all of this. Um, it all kicks off. People are firing everywhere. Um, Sasha is killed, so, I mean, you can't have someone on your back when you're dead, can you? As are oh, the goons... Jamie arrives, she runs away because she's getting caught in the crossfire. She manages to fall down, like she keeps stumbling downstairs, keeps stumbling downstairs, keeps ending up in the line of fire here. Uh, Maybe bad sense of direction or just magnetised to danger, who knows. Eventually, Caster, as Archer, takes Jamie hostage, but she takes fake daddy's advice, stabbing him in the leg with the knife he gave her earlier, twisting it as well. Um, she too is going to need a lot of therapy once this is over. In the words of the Simpsons, Helen Lovejoy, won't someone please think of the children, unless you're a conservative. So Castor escapes, Archer pursues, leading to the best action sequence. As per the 1997 MTV Movie Awards, these speedboats are zigging, they are zagging, they are bashing into each other. Castor manages to gun down an entire boat if police officers archer speeds through that same boat and it explodes uh then yeets into a bigger boat and that explodes but not before he jumps onto caster's boat and then they skirmish like men possessed caster is winging around this um anchor i think of some description trying to cut him in twain with it archer's knocked over on the holding onto this chain on the outside effectively jet skiing on his shoes on the side of the boat he gets back on uh they tussle with a harpoon gun for a moment but then he harpoons it um i should say archer this is harpoons it into a pier and then he manages to fuck them both yeet them both off of the boat onto a deck obviously the boat explodes because um of course it did you're not gonna have a boat in a scene and not have that explode so then they tussle some more um they're trying to stab each other with sharp, shardy things. Caster gains the upper hand, but Archer stabs him in the leg with the harpoon gun. Caster starts cutting his own face off. He's like, well, you're not having this back, you son of a bitch, and uh, shards himself. Shards himself with the, shards himself with the sharp thing. But Archer kicks him with a swift kick to the nart and a harpoon bolt to the gut. Uh, the FBI arrive just in time, as always, and they call Archer as Caster, Archer, so they know what's gone on. Um, it looks like Eve must have explained things to them. I mean, it's a bit of a hard sell, admittedly. Where do you even start with something like that? But um, 
stranger things have happened. Have they? (laughs) Have they? I don't know. But everyone knows the case now. Eve explains that the top surgical team from DC are coming. They're going to whack the face back. He's going to be all right. Um, And so, true to their word, they restore Archer to his old Travoltian self, but not before he tells them, you know what, now you don't need to return my scar, my bullet wound scar. I don't need it anymore. Um, So he's got some closure, got some closure there. Caster is dead. It's all going to be fine. I've got my face back. My face was off, but now you should call this film Face On because it's on again. Get it, Hollywood, anytime. Please, call me. I'm desperate. So now Archer, as Archer, returns home to hugs from the family and the knowledge that Cage hogged his wife. But they'll never talk about it again. That'll just be a deeply rooted thing that keeps him up at night. Now, he also brings Adam home. Um, Archer strokes Jamie's face. Jamie strokes Adam's face. The circle of face stroking continues. I swear there's a drinking game out there for face off. You take a drink every time someone gets their face stroked. I should have been playing this as the film was going on. Um, I mean, say what you like, but this wouldn't happen in Caster's family. Fucking weird face-stroking lunatics. Um, But with that, all's well that ends well. The film ends. I just hope they wash their hands frequently. Face, face, stroke, head, face, whatever. Now, apparently that ending almost didn't happen. So Paramount didn't really like the ending of the hero adopting the enemy's son, John Wu also wanted to do something a bit more ambiguous as to whether Eve actually had her husband back or if it was still Caster. Um, it's going to left, leave that big sort of question mark hanging over the end of the film. But test audiences weren't happy with either of those endings. They also were pretty adamant to get some clarity on Caster's son. And that led to the ending that we finally got there. So there we go. Brings us to the end of Face Off, the 1997 John Woo masterpiece. And you watch this and you think, you know what, Travolta Cage absolutely smashed it out of the park. It's easier just to look at the ridiculous plot and all the hyper-stylized action sequences and just forget that these two do something fucking wonderful. Like, put on a real acting masterclass here and um, convey these dualities, these different emotions that they have to convey while staying true to the person they're alternatively portraying as well um i just find it interesting that nick cage didn't initially want the role of caster troy he had a bit of a, a lack of an interest in playing a villain but when he was told that well to be fair for about two hours of the film you're going to actually be playing the hero then he quickly signed on he must have been on a a rock hyper a con air hype but hey we're happy it went down the way it did. We're happy to have you, Nicholas Cage Senpai, the greatest actor of our generation. Uh, apparently there are talks to reboot Face Off, whether that's a film or a TV series. I'm not too sure. There were some talks that came out about September of last year. Uh, not too sure whereabouts they are in the process with that now. Uh, interested to see how they would do it, if it'd be more or less the same, if they would take it differently. Would Nick Cage be back? That's the real question that we've got to ask ourselves here. But look, face off, there we go. It's um, it's a ridiculous plot. It's over the top. It's surreal. It's almost farcical at some points. Uh, at some points, like a, just a completely 
absurd action cartoon. And as implausible and hysterical as it can be, it's also very slick. It's very hyper-stylized, very sensational. But what keeps it together is MTV's best on-screen duo of 1997. These two are wonderful performances from the two leading men, Nicolas Cage and honorary hogger John Travolta as well. Um, Two actors who I think don't get enough credit. Um, Obviously, Nicolas Cage, I'll sing his praises until the cows come home. John Travolta, someone else who I think should really be getting more praise than we give him. I don't know if John Travolta is in the conversation enough now. I say admittedly, I should probably watch some more John Travolta films. If there are any John Travolta films um, that you'd recommend, hit me up and let me know at cage underscore podcast. I'm very interested to take a look at the uh, Travolta back catalogue a little bit more. But there we go. That's it. That brings us to the end of the episode, to the end of Face Off and to the end of perhaps the greatest run of four films that anyone has ever had in cinematic history. What a ride, what a joy this episode and the last three have been um, to rediscover the the Cage greats, perhaps the uh, Rushmore of Cage films. Again, what are, your, what are your Rushmore of Cage films? Hit me up, let me know. Be very interested to hear from you. Um, you can probably hear slightly that my voice is going a little bit. I've been talking for about an hour non-stop so it's probably time i go and get a drink of water and calm the fuck down so thank you for listening if you have been as ever you can hit me up on the usual social medias twitter at cage underscore podcast instagram at cage rage pod coffee.com forward slash daryl edge um and you can listen to this on the following streaming platforms spotify amazon music stitcher pod chaser Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you in the next one. That'll be 1998's City of Angels. But until then, keep on, keep on caging. Bye.